Ephesians uh, chapter 1, we are going to, through this year, I think we'll uh, spend some weeks at the start and then come back later through the year uh, in Galatians, um, and we're going to go verse by verse through this wonderful letter uh, from the Apostle Paul, um, week by week, just applying it to our lives, the living word taking root in us. Um, really want it to be helpful for you. Let me encourage you to read the letter through at home, uh, maybe in your quiet times. We, we've got a deal on some uh, little Galatians study guides from John Stott. Um, I've got 25 of them down by the cafe um, for just five pounds. Uh, I tried to find something that would be helpful and useful to read that's not too fat, because I know many of us are daunted by a fat book, um, but something that is accessible and also affordable. So many paperbacks now are 10, 12 pounds. For just a fiver, you can get some of John Stott's riches and wisdom on Galatians. I think whether you're trying to restore a Bible reading and praying habit in the mornings in 2018, or maybe in a small group or with friends or, or family, you just want to do some study together, please get hold of one of these. I'd love to sell them all and have to get some more. Um, so please grab one of those. We'll have them around tonight through the prayer week, the next couple of Sundays until they're gone. But for just one crisp new five pound note, uh, you, you could interact with John Stott in Galatians. You can't do better than that, can you really? Well, I didn't think so. Um, there's not many things you can do better than that for a fiver. What, are you going to get a Big Mac meal? It's of some value? <laughs> yeah. Come on, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your lovely presence. We thank you for that, that word this morning that Bev brought. You lift us up. You, you bring us to Jesus. Jesus, you bring us to the Father. Thank you, you've promised in John 14. You won't leave us alone as orphans. That even where we feel alone or may feel abandoned or lost. Lord, we aren't. You have your eye on us. You have your hand on us. Lord, you're with us right now by your spirit. And as we open up Galatians, as we embark on this week of prayer and fasting, oh God, by your wonderful Holy Spirit, would you meet with us? Lord, more even than the things we're praying for and the breakthroughs we long for, Lord Jesus, most of all we pray this week, we would encounter you. We would know your lovely sweetness, your beautiful presence. We know the face and the smile of Jesus, just as Bev described, the, the mother's face lighting up as the child was held again. How much more do we have a father who's ready to lavish his love on us and by his spirit enable us to cry out in response, Abba, Father, oh Father, how loved we are, how secure we are. Would you reveal your lovely face to us again? this week as we pursue you. It's you we want to pursue, Lord, not the stuff of breakthrough, not the things we need answers in, not the things we're perplexed on or the things that are broken in our lives. Lord, you know these things before we even ask them. We've sung that this morning. But God, how much more do you want to open our eyes to your beauty, your majesty, your, your beautiful presence? So we just welcome you. Even now, Lord, as we open the word, come to each one, each heart, we pray, and, and uh, make your love known to us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Wow, we're in for a good week. So Galatians 1, uh, just read the first five verses this morning. Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, the, for us that are Brits, we, we don't write many letters anymore. We still send emails, although if you're under the age of 20, 25, you probably don't even send emails anymore. I appreciate that. 
An email is something that you send on a computer that's usually sat on a desk somewhere uh, and uh, eventually gets read by the recipient. Uh, it's not instant like uh, app messaging. Um, a letter is something that you write with a pen and paper. You put a stamp on it, you go to a post box. Uh, a man is employed or a woman to deliver it through someone's front door and a few days later they get to read it. It's wonderful. And uh, when I used to get letters, I used to get letters from Kaz, we'd write to each other all the time uh, when we were in our teenage years. And of course I knew her handwriting, so there was no guess when it dropped on the mat, who's the letter from? Uh, but if you received a letter and you, you didn't recognize the writing on the envelope, usually you would turn straight to the back of the letter to see who's writing this. You usually shake it too, see if there's a check from an auntie in there. I have to explain checks as well, I guess. Um, <laughs> anyway, moving on to the letter. Here in, in Paul's style of writing in the first century, writing into this Greek culture, he's very evidently the author. He doesn't write at the end, although he does actually at the end as well, but from the very start, the first word of this first verse is Paul, the apostle. Um, he's evidently the author. We'll come back to that verse in a moment. But of course, as we approach this letter, and perhaps before we get into our verses today, just a brief overview, we also want to know who's the letter being written to? Who's it addressed to? Who were the Galatians, the churches in Galatia, the Roman province of Galatia, you recognize, perhaps if you remember any history, uh, that in the first century the Roman Empire had spread out north, south, right up, we were part of it, um, and uh, once they uh, overcame the, south, the plucky South Saxons, of which we remain a part of that tribe in Sussex, uh, right up to Hadrian's Wall, right down to the north of Africa, right across into what we now call Eastern Europe, and even across to Syria, Roman Empire. And uh, Paul uh, and Barnabas planted uh, their first uh, church planting journey from Acts 13, 14 through uh, cities and towns that we now find in, I guess, what we now call Turkey, uh, places called Derby, Lystra, Antioch, modern-day Turkey. Um, Paul's first journey was over by around AD 48, 49. Um, he probably wrote this letter around 49, 50 AD. And it would have been read out and passed around the, the churches. Maybe they would have scribed some extra copies, uh, but they would have been read out and taken to pieces, taken apart, prayed over in the churches, just as we're doing this morning and in the weeks ahead. If we read, and I'd encourage you to read Acts 13, 14, 15, you'll get some of the background to the issues that we find in Galatians. And uh, evidently from the stories in Acts that give us the background and the context, there had been a wonderful breakthrough of the gospel, churches planted, um, um, out from just the Jewish people where the church had begun in Jerusalem, now amongst what the Jews called the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the Greek speakers of the Roman Empire. Local church communities have been planted, elders have been appointed to lead them, but strong opposition had arisen not just from the locals, but from, mainly from the Jewish populations that were in those cities in that part of what we now call Turkey. There must have been a problem. Uh, usually with Paul's letters, you'll find, perhaps apart from uh, Corinthians, and there's a problem there as well, he usually writes with real warmth about his love for them and what a father he is to them as his children. Here, he's just straight in. There's no messing about. So there's evidently a, a problem that he's wanting to address. There's no warm introduction. And from early on, we'll find it from next Sunday in chapter 1, uh, later on, it's apparent that the very gospel is at stake amongst these newly established churches. Um, it's apparent that others had come in very quickly after Paul uh, and his team had moved on and have begun to distort and twist the truth. And so in this letter, Paul's writing to remind them um, of the gospel of grace and the freedom they have from all the old ways and the old burdens of the, the law. Paul particularly opposes those he calls Judaizers. Uh, that is, those Jews who probably aren't even followers of Christ, 
uh, but I'm wanting to say to Greek-speaking believers in Jesus Christ that if you're really going to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, uh, then you have to take all the aspects of the law, the Jewish law, back on yourself as well. And so having been saved wonderfully by the grace of God, sins forgiven, access through Jesus to our Heavenly Father, now they begin to whisper in people's new believers' ears, oh, you just need, you need to get circumcised if you're a man, you need to begin to follow the food regulations, the hygiene regulations, the festivals uh, and the calendar through the year that the Jews followed. Uh, Paul insists that this is not the way for believers in Jesus Christ to live in this letter. He thinks that to do so is to, is to rob the cross of Christ of its power. Um, and he's astonished at how quickly they've fallen back into this. They've embraced these foolish distortions. He writes very strongly. He's calling them back into the grace of God that they started in. What we call the true gospel is evident here in Galatians. The unmerited grace gift of God uh, through the cross of Christ, through Jesus' death and resurrection. It's where we all started this life, Jew or Gentile. It's where we continue. So that's the background to the letter. You may think, well, that's interesting, but is it relevant for my life today in 21st century Crawley? Well, two things. Number one, as we said during our Reformation series, this word is alive. It's the living, active word of God. It's relevant through every generation, every season. So we must apply it to our lives, whatever we feel about it. But also, we believe it has specific relevance, this letter, for us today. It's important for us to realize how quickly and easily it's possible for us to fall into wrong thinking, into ideas that are in our culture and our background that we never really fully replaced when we embraced the gospel. They just remained in the ground, as it were, in the soil. Um, and they begin to grow again, and they begin to affect our thinking uh, and our attitudes, ultimately our behavior. If we think it can't happen to us, hey, here are churches planted by the Apostle Paul, okay? No, no, never mind, yeah, the Apostle Paul planted these churches, and yet these issues begin to grow up amongst them. Why would we be foolish enough to think it could never happen to us? So like Paul, we have, as New Testament churches do, a deliberate plan in our teaching and preaching to lay apostolic New Testament foundations over and over, again and again, preaching what Paul said later on to the Ephesian church. He called the whole counsel of God, the whole plan of God. Uh, we have to keep teaching that stuff to equip us and to mature us as disciples out in a world that is so at odds today with the gospel. In a room like this, there'll be some of you, even this morning, that are hearing the gospel for the very first time. That's, that's wonderful, but you've not really heard the gospel before. In a room like this, there'll be many who have heard the gospel, but have kind of forgotten the gospel um, and, in a, and need reminding. And in a room like this, there will be some, maybe a handful, who have given themselves to distortions, who've moved away from the gospel, and you need to be rebuked and called back to truth, particularly if the gospel's never been fully understood or never really got in our foundations, as we've said. It's particularly true for us, and we find this so strongly in Galatians, the, regarding the gospel of grace. I don't know if it's true in your life. I think it probably is, because it's true in mine. That, that seductive idea that we so readily fall for, um, this, this idea that, that grows up like ivy round our hearts and chokes the life out of us, that either we can do something to earn our salvation, or even having come into salvation through the unmerited grace of God, we somehow then begin to keep going by our own efforts, our own church attendance, our own efforts at good behaviour. That, that's a lie and a distortion of the gospel of grace. And so we need to lay regularly and consistently as churches a foundation of grace alone to come against and combat that kind of distortion, to keep us from building a 
house that is on wobbly foundations, a, a distorted house. Uh, if, if, are you looking for symptoms of that in your life right now, where you've moved away from the grace of God? Self-effort. Hey, if you started 2018 saying, I must try harder with my Bible reading, it's January the 7th and I'm already only on January the 3rd on my Bible reading plan. Hey, if, if you're worried about that, then there's perhaps, perhaps some symptoms of this kind of distortion in your life this morning. We begin to live by comparison with one another. Oh, wow, I'm sure Tony's not behind on his Bible reading plan. If only I could be like Tony. Or I look at someone else and think, oh, at least I'm ahead of him. Um, I'll be doing better than him. Again, that's evidence. It's a symptom uh, of a lack of understanding of grace. We begin to compare. We slip into legalism. It leads us into spiritual depression, even clinical depression. certainly leads us to fear and to failure. If we've been building on this foundation, if we're building that kind of house, the grace of God tears it down so we can return again. So this is relevant, church. Whether you're a new believer, an old believer, a distorted believer, this letter is for us today. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me. As we've said, no messing about, Paul, an apostle. Um, if, if you're reading this in the church, you're not sure who's, who's Paul again. He's very clearly and urgently expressing his credentials. He's holding up his badge, his authority to speak these things into the church. An apostle simply means to be a sent one. It's one of those Greek words that we've just adopted into church language in English. Um, a sent one, one who has been sent. In the New Testament, we find three different Types of apostle, I, I guess. Um, firstly, and let's not miss this, people often do, Jesus Christ himself is the, the primary apostle. Um, he's the model. He's the pattern that we follow. Hebrews 3.1 says, Jesus, calls Jesus Christ the apostle and high priest of our faith. That's good news. So if you want to know what a sent apostle does... Um, who he is, about his character, how he conducts himself. You could do a lot worse than look at Jesus Christ and his character um, and look at the ministry of Jesus. And the second types of apostles that we see in the New Testament are those who are with Jesus, what often get called the Twelve, those disciples that he chose to be with him. And then, of course, Judas, who, having betrayed Jesus, uh, killed himself. Uh, and uh, the, the, the Eleven, whilst waiting for the promised Holy Spirit after Jesus has ascended into heaven, um, they picked another to replace Judas, Matthias, and so the twelve were unique uh, amongst uh, all apostles in that they were the ones who were with Jesus. And the third type of apostle, apostolic ministry we see in the, in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. And the others in the New Testament who um, weren't with Jesus, weren't um, uh, uniquely chosen by him like the first eleven, the first twelve during his earthly ministry, but were called later by Jesus Christ to play their primary part in the foundation of local churches and in the writing of scripture. So uh, Paul, Barnabas, James, um, there seems to be too a very clear indication that that line continues today. There's no indication that, that the uh, ministry of the apostles stopped with the twelve or just with Paul and Barnabas and James and one or two others or the end of Acts. Um, if you read Ephesians 4, 8 to 11, uh, it talks about grace gifts that are given uh, by the Holy Spirit to the church to equip us for works of service, to bring us to maturity in Christ. 
in Ephesians 4, these grace gifts are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. I don't hear anyone today saying that evangelists aren't a gift to the church today to equip the saints. I don't hear anyone saying pastors are not, oh, they, they were just for the early church. And yet we often say that, don't we, uh, about apostles, or you hear it said. There's a very clear intention from the scriptures uh, and an expectation that other apostles will be given and chosen by Jesus Christ that this gift continues as being vital in how God will build not just the first unique generation, and they were unique, those first men, um, but continuing the pattern and ministry of Jesus until Jesus returns. So for us, as wanting to be a, a genuine New Testament church, that's how we operate uh, as New Testament churches. Churches led by teams of elders, uh, working with, gladly, happily submitting to teams of apostles. In a couple of weeks, we'll get, uh, I think, from verse 11 onwards, much more insight into Paul's unique call from Jesus to be an apostle. You can read that yourself. I'd encourage you to read the whole letter through and get a feel for how it was, the, the flow of it. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking tonight at the prayer meeting, we'll perhaps read the whole letter through together as we pray uh, as well. But Paul tells more of his story later. For now, I think we can just briefly make some important distinctions. Paul says this he, as an apostle, he's not from men or by man. Colossians 1.1, 1, 1, uh, Paul writes a le- another letter and says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So this is not a, a choosing of man. These apostles, not just Paul, but the others too, uh, they've not just been picked as the, the, the kind of best looking guys. Um, it's not come through promotion. Hey, you've done quite well at local church level. Maybe we'll you know, give you a few uh, more churches to look after. Um, it's not come through birthright. You're born into the right family. You've got the right surname. Uh, and therefore, it's just a natural progression for you. It's not through education. Paul was very well educated as a Jew, but it doesn't come that way. You don't make apostles because they have master's degrees or doctorates or because they've understood theology better than anyone else. It's not through time served. Hey, you've worked so hard. You've got into your 60s. We'll kind of get you out of the way a bit at local church level and give you a bit of an apostolic role, a bit like the England football manager uh, usually has been, that, that when you've, you've, you've passed your best, we'll give you the England management role. That's not what the apostolic is in the new... It's not going to be that way now in this glorious year of England's World Cup victory. Let me just say it here on the first Sunday in January. Um, that wasn't prophetic, by the way. But I, I, I see you can weigh prophecy. I'm, I'm pleased at your maturity. Nor is their message something that comes from men. Uh, they've not made up their own message. They don't run with their favourite theme. Oh, the apostle's on his hobby horse again about the things he likes to talk about. In verse 11 and 12, Paul says very clearly the message he's received has come from a revelation by Jesus Christ. So an apostle is sent by Jesus and their sending is with a message which is not of their own as well. I think this should give us confidence when we, when we submit gladly to apostolic teams. We're not looking around, where's my favourite apostle? Where's the one that says the kinds of things that we're into, that we prefer to hear? If you want to know, is that a true apostle? Is that a genuine apostolic team? Then we just need to look, is their message consistent with the message of Jesus in the gospel? If it is, we gladly run with them. This is a reliable, dependable message. It's rooted in the unchanging word of God. It follows in the pattern of Jesus. He says, I'm called to be an apostle through Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ, the first apostle. And through the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. So Paul's calling, Paul's ministry, Paul's message is all about the ascended Christ. He's been raised to life from the dead. He's victorious. He's now ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's now poured out grace gifts on the church, one of which is the apostolic ministry. So the apostle 
uh, and the one who's called Paul, Jesus Christ, to this ministry. They can't be separated. So Paul's defending himself here, definitely in this letter. There are people that are saying, no, you don't want to listen to Paul. We've got a better way. Let's go back to the law. He's defending his right to call them as an apostle of Jesus, back to the true gospel of Jesus. And his defense is simply, Jesus has called me. Jesus has given me a message to the churches. Argue with that. That would be the kind of mic drop moment, I think. When someone says, Jesus has revealed this to me and he's told me to say it to you, it's very hard to argue with that. Sometimes people say those kinds of things to us as pastors and you think, I'm, I'm not sure he has. Um, but it's still very hard to argue. Here, we're very happy to say, Paul, you're absolutely right. And Paul says in verse 2, uh, not only about his calling, but also the brothers who are with me. It's just worth noting as we go through verse by verse, Paul always operates in a team. He doesn't travel on his own. He doesn't write on his own. It's common in his letters for Paul to include greetings from the rest of the team. Uh, and uh, often when he's either writing or traveling, he's either with other apostles in the team or he's with uh, younger uh, guys who are coming through, who are, I guess are apostles in training. It's a real development, uh, leadership development plan that Paul operates in. He doesn't make decisions alone as an apostle. Again, that should really secure us. He's not just uh, waking up in the morning and thinking of a plan and heading off, I'm the apostle, I get to say what we do. In Acts 13, where Paul first goes with Barnabas on their first apostolic church planting journey, even the, the decision to send them and go was made as they prayed together with, with, with the elders and with prophets uh, and Paul and Barnabas together. So decisions are not made alone by apostolic teams. The first apostles, right through Acts of the Apostles, um, seem to have made this their pattern just a decision to work in community. I don't know if they talked it through and decided or whether it was just natural because it's how Jesus worked. I think it's probably that way because that's how Jesus had operated and the 12 who'd been with Jesus carried on doing exactly what he'd done, working in community, working in partnership. We see it from the moment they're waiting together obediently in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to fall in Acts chapter 2. And then their apparent teamwork right through the early parts of Acts as the Jerusalem church is planted Peter, John, others working together. Of course, we've said about Acts 13, where Paul and Barnabas go off together. I think as we've been hinting at, apostolic teams, just in human terms, are safer. There's so much abuse around the world. The, it, I'm, I'm so grateful within New Frontiers and Terry Virgo's leadership and others that have been on the apostolic team over the years uh, have, have led as men after Christ's heart. But you hear so many horror stories around the world, particularly as we engage with other churches and other places where apostles have, have been abusive. They've sought power, they've sought money or, or sex. It's usually one of those three and sometimes all three. And so they've, uh, and they've been able to act on their own. They've had so much power. Uh, I think it's so much safer where apostles work in teams as we see in the New Testament pattern. Just in human terms, it's wiser, it's safer. In spiritual terms, I think the, the, the team dynamic reflects something of the way God has always worked. Father, Son, and Spirit from the very from before the beginning, but the beginning that we read about in Genesis, uh, reflecting something of that beautiful uh, Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, reflecting something of the way the church is supposed to work together as a family in community. So we have apostolic teams to lead that. To the churches in Galatia, from Paul, the sent apostle, and his team. Verse 3, still with me? Okay. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know, often when we read through the letters of Paul, we can often miss these beautiful short greetings in our rush to get to the main body of the text. This is beautiful. Grace and peace. It's like a double whammy, a double blessing. 
Um, grace and peace are signposts, really, for us of the, of the bigger themes that are to come through this, this letter that will underpin the whole letter. The, the grace of God, the undeserved favour, we've already talked about it, with which we have come to Christ and which we're to continue to walk in. And the peace of God, the, 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 the all-consuming rightness, sense of rightness with God. We are at peace with him, now at peace with one another that this grace leads us into. Grace and peace, Paul blesses the people with. It only comes to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the gospel. There's no other way to find it. Sometimes you can read these things, oh, God bless you, grace and peace. Sometimes we read the kind of blessings or the, the um, Aaron's blessing back in Numbers, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you, the Lord give you his peace. And it's, it could be a little bit superficial. Maybe you've grown up in a church where you've used liturgy and you've just said it so many times that, that you've lost the value and the richness of it. These are wonderful, powerful blessings. This isn't some kind of Clinton card sentiment, uh, some sort of superficial, oh, God bless you, brother, grace and peace to you. Um, to be blessed, to receive a command from the apostle of Jesus Christ that releases grace and peace into our lives is to receive something um, of, of life-giving strength and hope that comes through the Apostle, from God the Father, through Jesus the Son. It's a wonderful blessing. Wouldn't you love to receive a blessing of grace and peace like that today? Don't know what anxieties you've come in carrying. Don't know what legalism you've come in wrestling with. Wouldn't it be great to go out in, in 20, 25 minutes or so and say, wow, I've received the grace and peace that comes through Jesus Christ from God the Father. Just put your hand up again if you want to receive that. Lord Jesus, would you bless us? It's your promise. It's in the scriptures. So we receive it right now. We pray right into every heart by your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just read verse 4 together. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you want a summary of the gospel of grace... If you want to know what is this message that apostles major in, what do they do their doctorate in? Well, it's in this. Um, there's no other message. Paul tells us in his other letters he labored with this kind of message night and day. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 no other focus for him other than Christ crucified. Um, as we'll see next week, he's astonished at how far and how quickly they've moved from the true gospel. But to move from it, you've got to know where you stood in the first place. And uh, part of the work of the Apostle, as we've said, is to call churches back to, to remind believers. We've commented already, we so readily drift. We so quickly begin to shape our lives around lesser truths. We so easily forget to live with the wonder of the gospel front and centre um, in our lives, shaping everything, stirring joy, releasing worship. It's great to sing that old, uh, it is well with my soul, and kind of grapple through those old words. What does that word mean? But in the end, you're left with, oh yeah, the gospel's amazing, and it puts everything right from the inside out. It's incredible. I wasn't sure about the Satan buffet. Um, was, my mum always warned me about buffets. You know, you never know what you catch from a buffet. It, was, it talks about Satan buffeting, uh, but it's just, in English, it's the same word. Anyway. <laughs> My wife's not here this morning. She'd have, she'd have given me a look that would have saved me going through that for you. Um, you see what happens when she's not here? Wow. So we need the gospel. Have we drifted? Are we confident in knowing this gospel? Maybe you don't know it yet, as we've said this morning. Hey, listen over these next few minutes. This is vital for you. Are you one who's drifted from the gospel? Listen over these next few minutes. This is vital for you. 
Not only do I want to be clear about the gospel for my own worship and my own devotion, but I want to live out and communicate the gospel out there in the world. I, I was kicking myself Christmas Eve. We came back from church. I had a chance meeting with a neighbor who was coming into his drive at the same time. We had a great conversation, told me about some problems that were going on in his life and some horrible sickness with his wife. And I chatted with him and I talked a little bit about church. But inside, there was a voice saying, offer to pray for him. And I said, hey, God bless you. Have a happy Christmas. And walked inside and finished the conversation. And I, I oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I, do you know what? In that moment, I was thinking, ah, oh, even for me, I was thinking, how, how do I begin to share the gospel with him in this moment? I was thinking as I looked at this passage, if we could just memorize this phrase in verse 4, just equip ourselves with a great, simple summary. Uh, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. That would be somewhere to start um, and uh, would equip us not only, as we've said, in our devotions, but to help a world that doesn't yet know the gospel. So let's unpack this verse. Jesus, who gave himself for our sins. Paul, probably as a... Uh, as a Jew himself, um, is probably thinking of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law of Moses, where um, if you'd sinned before God, you would go to the priest and you're, you, would, uh, you would buy a perfect unblemished lamb uh, and the lamb would be killed uh, for your sins as a sacrifice. Um, Paul is evidently thinking about uh, the Old Covenant law here. Jesus being the perfect lamb, the, the, as Hebrews calls him later, the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. He's thinking like John the Baptist was when John saw Jesus coming towards him before he baptised him and said, see the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. John's disciples who were with him would have said, uh, John, no, that's, that's your cousin Jesus. I think, do you need to go to Specsavers? John says, no, no, I know it's my cousin Jesus, but he's the Lamb of God. He's the one who's going to bear our sin. He's the one who's going to give himself for our sins. And the Saviour Jesus proved John the Baptist's words to be right. He lived a life of such self-giving, generous love and continues to love his church in this way. Just a few passages for you. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many, for our sins. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Paul again, 1 Corinthians 15.3, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. Okay, we've got to listen. What's he going to say that's so important? That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5.25 of this self-giving love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow, what's at the heart of this gospel message which Paul builds his life on and and roots his churches upon? We have a saviour who died, but we have a saviour who died for us, who gave himself for us, not just some some impersonal martyr out there, but for our sins, for my sins. In accepting this gospel truth, there are probably two major agreements that we come to. Firstly, I am a sinner. I'm in need of rescue. My sin is great enough to need saving from. It's significant enough. It matters to God. It keeps me out from his holiness. It keeps me from relationship with my heavenly Father. That's my first acknowledgement as I look at the gospel here. It's where any new believer must start. Jesus didn't just give himself for sins, but for my sin. I love it. We still sing that old chorus from 20 years ago. And I never know how much it costs 
to see my sin upon that cross. You remember that one? Let's just sing it together. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. I don't think we can say you're my God without recognising that he's had to deal with my sins. That's what makes it so personal. That's our first agreement as we look at the gospel. I'm a sinner in need of rescue. Not only am I a great sinner, secondly, but that my saviour Jesus has given himself for me. He's covered my sin. He's stood in the gap. He's done it for my sake. I love the way the old Nicene Creed summarises this kind of apostolic foundation. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Who for us men, for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was crucified also for us. These are gospel truths. Um, there's another song we sing a lot at the moment, isn't it? My, my, my sin was great, your love was greater. What could separate us now? What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. So here's the gospel. I'm a sinner, but Jesus has come to rescue me from my sins. Paul goes on in this verse to rescue us from the present evil age. There's a point to the saving death of Jesus for my sins. Uh, it's not just to make me happy, but then leave me alone. It's to deliver and rescue me from this evil age, this present age um, is evil. It's not a neutral age. If you think you're in a neutral place right now, you are not. Um, we are in a war, in a battle. This age is not going to get better on its own. At the start of the last century, uh, people thought, hey, we're moving into an era where the wisdom of man will bring us to some happy utopia. Uh, two world wars, communism, later and all the other things that have happened through those hundred years, I think any idea that people had that somehow on our own, things can only get better, um, as D. Ream once sang. What a nonsense. That goes, it's at odds with the gospel. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, men and women have been outside of Christ, dead in their sins, trapped within it, no way out. Not even a desire or an understanding they need to come out. I've just said it, Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 1, you're dead in your sins, you're following the ways of the world, the ruler, the spirit who's at work in all those who are disobedient. We're living under the command and the rule of Satan, under his deception. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul writes about Satan as the God with a, a small g, uh, there's only one God with a capital G, uh, so it's not kind of 50-50, who's going to win here, uh, but he has very real delegated power right now, the God of this world who's blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the glory of Christ. Do you think it was neutral for you, for your friends or neighbours who don't know Jesus? There's a God with a small g who's got enough power to at least blind their minds and not allow them to see the light of the glory of Christ. It really matters. There's no neutrality. It matters that we know Jesus. It matters that our friends and family and neighbours and work colleagues don't know Jesus. It's not okay. It's not good for them to remain trapped in this evil age. We need rescue. If there's any kind of realisation that drives us to prayer this week for the lost, then this verse should be it, that we should cry out to God to rescue us, to open, open eyes and ears and hearts among those who are trapped in this evil age and have no idea whatsoever. Perhaps we can pray this week. May the Lord Jesus awaken them. May he unblind them. May he rescue them. May he alert them 
to their sin and their need for rescue. And Paul says this present evil age, um, the implication is that this present age, there is an age to come. There's a future age, not just a present age. We've been rescued and saved into eternal life through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Eternal life starts the day we come to Christ. Um, But it will go on after our deaths. We go through death and continue on into greater life unless Jesus returns first. I, I don't think we are as preoccupied as the Apostle Paul and the first churches regarding the age to come. We rarely meditate on these themes. I suspect that we've made this present age everything. I've made this present age and all that I build around me of such value and such reality that I don't really believe the future age can compare to what I now have around me. Again, if that is our expectation, we are completely at odds with the expectation of the New Testament church. They saw things absolutely 100% the other way around, that whatever riches we have, however brilliant it may be now, whatever loves and joys and contentments we walk in, how much more, how much greater, how much sweeter will it be in the age to come? Listen, what we do now is of real eternal value. I'm not saying this life is not worth anything but it is not the hope that we fundamentally live for we've we've died with Christ we've been raised with him we've been transferred already from one age into another so Paul can say later we're already as we as it were seated in heavenly places with Christ we've come from one kingdom to another we now we we live in this world in this age right now but we are definitely not defined by it we're of this world uh, we're in this world but not of it Uh, we are people of the future age people of the future rule and reign of Jesus Christ And as those who have been rescued by Jesus from our sins, we've got a greater hope, a greater longing that draws us towards the new heaven and the new earth and equips us in the meantime to live with joy and contentment, recognising we are in this present evil age. Please can I hear an amen? Amen. My my wife and my mother-in-law, Jackie, is part of this church, Kaz, they're they're with granddad, Jackie's dad, uh, this morning. He's at St. Catherine's Hospice. Last few days they've been saying it's today, he's going to go be with... Jesus, well, I haven't used that language. Um, uh, Granddad's 93, loves the Lord deeply, said to me on Thursday, I'm ready to see the beautiful face of Jesus. They're just with him, expecting maybe today for him to go. There's someone now who's got things right. It's a 93-year-old granddad on his bed. He's recognised, hey, this life's been wonderful. I love this family around me. Love all that they're running with, but I'm about to go and see Jesus. It's better by far, Paul said. That's how we're to live, friends. Uh, Sometimes we just catch it in these kinds of moments, don't we, that we're uh, enjoying as a family at the moment. But I think we're supposed to live with that realisation all the time. I was sharing with Grandad uh, yesterday or the day before, uh, just talking about some of these verses and just reflecting. Mother Teresa got it right. I'm sure I've said this before. She said, uh, compared with eternity with Christ, our time on earth will seem like one night in a bad hotel um, that's, that's how it is. I've stayed in a few, by the way. Um, ah, let's move to a finish and to prayer, shall we? I had some other things to say. God's so ready and willing to rescue. It's not hard. We, we don't have to beg him. Death couldn't hold him, and it can't hold us either. We've been rescued. He's liberated us from the bondage we're in. He finishes in verse... Back of verse 4 and verse 5, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's God's plan. It's God's salvation plan from the Garden of Eden at the beginning onwards. It's always been God's plan to rescue for himself a people for the praise of his glory. Wow. Jesus gets the glory. He gets praised. Um, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, 
Jesus endured the cross. He scorned its shame for the joy of bringing many sons and daughters, boys and girls, men and women, grandpas and grandmas to glory, for the joy of filling every room in his father's house with children of God, for the joy of assembling a crowd that is impossible to count from every tribe, tongue and people group. So praise goes to Jesus and to his father for this magnificent gospel plan, not just in this present evil age from the faithful church, but forever and ever, ages upon ages, the Greek tense is, not just in this age, but in the age to come, all glory be to the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we not overflow in praise uh, and love for Jesus at this incredible finished work of the gospel at the start of this Galatians series? Can we stand? Let's pray together.